Breaking. 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 Uh, imposter. The imposter. Imposter. Breaking. The imposter. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Imposter. I, again, am your host, Jermaine Ward. And like always, we have a very exciting guest to have conversations with. Today, we're greeted and have the pleasure of having Ryan Ng in our presence. So please, Ryan, just tell us a little bit about yourself. For sure. Jermaine, it's great to be on the show. Love that. Love that presenter voice. Everybody listen. It's so great. Uh, quickly, just about myself. Uh, my name's my name's Ryan. I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Went to school here. I've been working in tech sales for the last four years. Uh, started my career off at IBM, some short time at Oracle, some time at Shopify. Uh, then now I work at a company called Unstoppable Domains. We're a series B startup in the blockchain space. Fun thing I'd like to share is that all of the jobs I've been working previously are in Canada. And this job, I was able to break in and, and land a job down here in New York City. So I've just settled in here in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, living in the city that never sleeps. Yeah. And how did you find a like, transition from being in Toronto for all your life and then moving over to a brand new city, new opportunity and just adjusting there? <laughs> some some pros and some cons. Um I think that it's only when you leave your hometown that you realize all the things that you've taken for granted. You know, all the all the Friday night poker nights, the board game nights, the good friends and everything, all the reputations that you build, the events you get invited to, things like that. They kind of, you know, go on the back burner, right? Uh, but going to New York City, I've been able to experience some things I have not seen in Canada. The way that venture-backed startups work, usually seed round, Series A, Series B funding, that happens in the U.S., usually out of San Francisco, usually out of um, an incubator like Y Combinator. Um, only when they reach Series C or D do they expand into Canada. So look at Stripe over the last year. Stripe has expanded to Canada. Uh, DocuSign, only after probably about IPO time, they expanded to Canada. So moving to the U.S. has just uh, allowed me to experience a lot more opportunities in tech for companies I've never thought uh, or never heard of but are doing really, really well. Nice. And could you, just for those who don't know or really understand it, could you tell us like what venture capitalism is and like the difference between those series and why that's... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the way the tech startups work is that, uh, you know, you have two people in the garage. Think about, you know, Steve Jobs or even um, Bill Gates, right? And you think about, is it, I believe it was Sequoia. So there's, there's like three top venture capital firms out of San Francisco, like Sequoia, Entries um, and Horowitz. And I believe it was Sequoia who actually provided seed funding to Steve for Steve Jobs to start Apple. This is like back in the 1980s. Uh, so this has been going on for a long period of time. But basically, seed funding is like your first investor saying, hey, Steve, you've got a great idea with this you know, Apple computer. I'll rate your check for you know five hundred thousand dollars. I just want you know five percent of your company, right? It's very much like that Dragon's Den type of pitch you see, but it's like the tech world. Um, after you go seed, you have pre-seed. You might have a seed round where you might just have an idea or a prototype. Once you've really launched a business and let's say you have five ten employees, then you'll go to Series A. Um, Series A is when you have a product out in the market, typically, and you're generating some revenue. Um, so we have a lot of incubators in Toronto as well. Think about the Digital Media Zone at Ryerson, uh, the Creative Destructive Lab out of U of T, uh, Waterloo, they have one as well. So um, that's Series A. Series B is when the company is like fairly established, may have up to 100 employees and, and so forth. Uh, I think like Ada or ClearBank, maybe Clio, they're probably at Series B or C, and they, they may even reach unicorn status by that stage. 
Um, and then Series D and E, you know, think about Stripe. Stripe is one of the most valuable startups in the world. They received the most amount of funding. Their valuation is like 90 billion, which is insane. I think they're at like Series E. So they fundraised five or six times from very notable investors. Um, and the way that these companies are evaluated, uh, it's usually 10 times revenue for a software business. So if Stripe is making is valued at 100 billion, they do 10 bill in revenue. And that's a huge company. Yeah, that's really intense. So it's like a lot of, for those of you that aren't like familiar with it or not, this is a good opportunity to be like, hey, are you starting a, something small? Look for seed funding. You can start seeing if that's going to work for your startup and find investors for that. And then you could make your way to those other letters. Nobody's getting to J just about yet. It's like <laughs> for my name's sake, but it definitely seems like there's a lot of movement that when it comes to the tech world and just like there's opportunity available for those that are looking to get yeah. that funding. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you've worked for some big Canadian names some national brands and, you know, so have I, and it's my first time actually working for a small company, uh, when I joined around a hundred employees. And so I wasn't really sure how to evaluate the opportunity. Is this good? Is this startup going to go bankrupt? What's it like? Um, so, you know, this early stage startups and there's more later stage, if you're looking to make a jump in a startup, and you want to take less risk, later stage is generally, uh, it's, it's, it's generally safer. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Yeah. And what would make you take that leap into something a little bit less safe? So when you did that evaluation, like when you were like, Hey, you know what, this is, this is an opportunity that I can be comfortable with doing and uprooting my life and moving over. Like what were some of those factors that you had considered for yourself to make you be like, I'm making a sound decision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a few things I think. Um, one is that uh, one, I'd say working in emerging industry. Uh, number two is growth of your role, and number three, I'd say equity. So I'll start with the first. So if you want to work in emerging industry, like the blockchain or crypto industry, almost all companies are kind of startups because it's so new. So I'd say the most notable companies in the blockchain space are probably Coinbase. Coinbase widely known across the US, been around for like nine years, very profitable, I think like 5,000 employees. It's almost like working maybe like a Shopify like five, seven years ago, right? Um, other notable companies like uh, Binance, uh, that's like basically the Asian version of Coinbase. Um, but besides that, many companies are just in the seed series A, B, C phase. Um, Coinbase is probably the only IPO uh, tech uh, crypto company that I can think of off the top of my head. Chain analysis is, is, is probably close. So um, if you want to work in an emerging industry that you're really passionate about, chances are you're going to work for a startup. If you want to work in VR, I don't think there's any publicly traded companies in VR yet. Maybe maybe uh, Meta would count, but they acquired like Oculus, right? Or Microsoft, but HoloLens is also a department, right? Um, so number one, working for the emerging industry. And number two, growth. One thing I've always wanted to do in my career uh, is to uh, to work as a leader, to, to have a team, to be promoted to manager. And for example, right at my time at IBM, um, IBM is one of the largest tech companies in the world, 350,000 employees. Um, and oftentimes the people who are, get promoted to manager are the people who've been there the longest. And so, um, you know, after three years there, I kind of looked around me, looked at my peers who'd been there for a similar amount of time. And I just thought, uh, for me to get promoted to manager, I'd probably have to wait for someone to retire, right? There's there's only so many spots, right? Mm -hmm. So um, at Oracle, I, I saw much more of a growth environment, Shopify, that, there's that as well. But this company in particular, uh, when I was interviewing, 
the manager basically told me, hey, my job is to hire 50 people in our business development organization. So I looked at that opportunity and I thought, okay, just the amount of growth they're having, the amount of leadership opportunities are going to open much faster. Um, Shopify also was high growth, but not in the same way. It, it'd probably take like maybe two or three years. And there are people who had been at Shopify for five years. They're more likely to be taking those roles. Whereas for me, our company has been around for, you can say four to five years, but really only started scaling the last two. Hmm. So, um, Growth opportunities is number two. And uh, the last reason for my move I'll, I'd like to share is just equity. And this is, I think, is a really important part to understand. So going back to the model, right? Let's say a company reaches unicorn status, billion dollars. The average CEO of a company has 10% of the company after all the investors and employees. So think about Michelle Romano, she's CEO of Clearco, right? If the company's worth a billion, how much equity does she have? She has probably $100 million of equity. It's funny, once you know this, you can look at somebody like, if you know how much, if you know their role and you know the valuation of the company, you actually know how much money they have. So like, she's rich. Not that you can sell it immediately, it hasn't IPO'd yet, but you can sell it on the private market uh, and so forth. So um, at my company, they offered me equity that was in like a percentage, like a percentage amount. So it's actually like compelling. Um, Whereas at Shopify, it was like five grand of Shopify stock a year, which is, it's nice to have, but uh, it's not going to change your life, right? Hmm. So, Got it. I think those are three different things where it's good to consider because I know a lot of people are looking into Web 3.0 right now and they're like, I just want to do cool things. I want to make different blockchain um, based things like gaming for one of the things that you were mentioning, or you want to change a financial industry in a certain way and use leveraging it. But there is a risk involved with those when you're going with careers. So it's very interesting that you still were like, you know what? I, I'm not afraid because this is kind of status quo. It's not like there's somebody that's, there's a lot of people that's doing this and I'm just going hail Mary for the random company. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's like in that like, oh, we don't know what we're doing. We're trying to get our feet in. So it's like good to know that that's part of it. And with the growth aspects, I'm just thinking of just opportunities. I think it kind of like ties a little bit in with equity because it's like I'm, I'm finding it funny that you have like equity and growth. Cause I'm thinking not only are you looking at growth as an individual, but you're looking at growth with the company when you look at it from the equity standpoint. So I think it's just like... I think like just a mix of those is just really interesting to me to hear because I'm not, I didn't, I haven't really heard those as factors from people when it comes to looking for their new roles. Yeah, yeah, and I think like uh, coming coming out of Ryerson, right? Like uh, it's a very uh, the way the simple way I put it, it's like the immigrant underdog school, right? <laughs> like at least in the, I'm talking about the business school in particular, because we have the cheapest tuition in Canada, $8,000 a year. We have the largest business school in Canada. Uh, I think it was 12,000 students in just the business faculty. I think like 35,000 across all campuses, engineering, arts, right? Um, but when I was at Ryerson, not a lot of people like knew about these things or nobody like taught me these things. Or I also felt like I have the opinion that Immigrants don't like to take large risks because they don't want to return to the conditions from which they once came, mm. right? Whereas if you're coming from a, a place of privilege, you can take more risks because what's the worst that can happen? You just go back to your comfortable place, right? So um, 
one, the reason I mentioned this is because like a broad theme you'll see throughout my career is taking risks. I think that um, taking risks are how you get ahead, but they have to be calculated and you have to be smart about it. So when we talk about this, this like start evaluating startups, um, it's like, uh, it's a form of, you know, taking more risk, but um, you'll also, you'll continuously see the people who've done the best in their business careers have been t- people who've taken risks. Yeah. I think the calculated aspect of it is where I'm hearing a lot of what you're doing. It's like, what's helping you make those decisions of, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go into industry that I really like, not stable, but I know enough where even though this industry is not, not as stable, I can still see that this company is doing well enough where it's not like just uh, they may fail in next week and then I'm stuck in I'm stuck in the States. <laughs> yeah. And so um just on that topic, uh I had I was talking to a guy today, he messaged me. He's at he's at Microsoft right now and he's considering going to a crypto company. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know what, Ryan, with the recession coming or with you know this big economic downturn, you know, Shopify mm-hmm. stock at negative 80%, it's wild, right? You know, I'm kind of scared to make a jump to a startup. And my response to him was you must be scared because you don't want to join a company and get laid off and be high and dry, right? But I believe that companies uh, have layoffs when they are not profitable. WeWork was a very good example. Uh, even Uber and Lyft are still operating, I think, at like a $500 mil to $1 billion loss. But imagine you join a company that's already profitable. Why do they need to lay people off? They don't need to cut costs, right? So... Um, when I was evaluating companies, I chose one that was profitable. Our company is very profitable. Yeah. And I guess from that perspective, like how do you do your research or how did you do your research to see that it's like profitable? Because that's something where I don't think a lot of people would be considering. Like for from what it sounds like, you might have a deeper understanding of how company evaluations work and yeah. <laughs> just that's kind of ingrained in what you're what you're looking at but like when people are i, I think it's like coming from a stock market mentality like it I, is, it i'm is. putting it yeah. i'm putting it in that same type of breath but if like somebody was just like hey you know what um i'm not a, i'm afraid of stocks and i'm like so if i'm afraid of stocks i won't apply it to my job search like what are mm. some things that you notice within your research that helped you like make those decisions that's easy to translate to somebody that just may not yeah. know yeah so you're right like I think what you're, the pattern that you're picking up on is that like when I choose to work for startup, it's like I'm choosing to invest in that startup, right? It's like uh, looking at the financials of the company, it looks like the revenue is going up, it's very profitable, so I'm going to invest my time, but I'll, you know, um, without understanding, I guess, you know, the putting on the investor lenses when choosing a company to work for, I think some other signs you can look out for are just, um, just like the growth the general like growth trajectory of the company, like when Shopify puts out an ad that's like, we're hiring 2000 developers in 2022, it's very clearly that they're doing well, otherwise they wouldn't be able to be doing hiring so much. I guess the other thing you can actually just ask during an interview is, is the company profitable? You can actually just ask that uh, and they'll actually give you the answer. <laughs> they, they might be impressed. They're like, oh, you're looking at this from a investment standpoint, but um it's good to ask. I think it's good to ask. And then I guess broadly is if you work in a growth industry, it's different than working in a shrinking industry, right? So I'll give you an example. So when I was working at Shopify, I asked my director, um, you know, how much do you think our company will grow this year? And he says, well, Ryan, not only is Shopify growing at 30% revenue over a year, 
but also the e-commerce industry is also growing at 20% over a year. So even if I were to hire 10 people, I still need to find another two for, just for the industry, right? Mm -hmm. So giving people broadly advice on like where to start the job search, pick a growth industry. It doesn't have to be hyper growth. It could just be software or tech or something like that. Yeah, and luckily for those that are listening right now, Google will help you on finding some of these things out <laughs> to know what to look for, how much checking to see their profit. You could go and check Yahoo Finance and see if there's anything that you can see the trajectory of these companies. So it's not just investing because you're investing in your future. You're investing in a company that will help you grow and they're investing in you to also help them grow. So if everybody's looking at looking at the numbers, it should it could be a little bit more than just salary that you're looking at because it's your future that you're that you're considering as well. Yeah, it, it's weird how much this business acumen comes in handy because I also have the theory that the most profitable businesses also pay their employees the most. For an example, like a very low margin business, like sometimes restaurants can be very, very low margin, right? That's why they can't afford to pay the same amount they pay as a software engineer, right? Mm -hmm. um, so finding the right companies, avoid the WeWorks, red flags, right? Uh, and you'll have you'll have a great career path. Yeah. All right. And I like that. Um, WeWorks, nothing against you. You're just an example that's being used. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just good to still understand, like, not saying it's a bad company, but based on the numbers, you have to be considering those things and be more objective in your search. You can't just say, oh, they're doing cool stuff that I've seen. You might want to look a little bit more into it to see, okay, I don't have to worry in the back of my head. I'm going to possibly be laid off if they're just hiring pe like five people versus somebody that's hiring 2000 people in my role where you could start making those comparisons. Make sure you get your spreadsheet out. That's how I work. Um, yeah. I just start seeing, just start seeing and just understanding a little bit more on an objective number-based level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier and you mentioned a few times um, that you're in blockchain right now. And I know you're in blockchain gaming. So like, I'm a gamer and I love playing games. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, how your company works and how your role um, looks at blockchain gaming and how it affects you? Yeah, for sure. So let's start. I'll start with uh, just the industry and then I can get into my company later. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a big picture. So um, blockchain gaming is a very new industry. And I think that um, it started with the emergence of NFTs. So uh, for listeners who may not know, uh, an NFT stands for non-fungible token, which basically is a digital asset. So CZ, who's the CEO of Binance, he said he's a very... Um, He's very optimistic about blockchain, but also very realistic, which is why I like his perspective. But what he says about the growth of the industry is that like, look, blockchain is not going to change the world. We're not going to completely change our whole financial system because of it. But where we're going to find really strong adoption is where we can do something we haven't done before. So the reason why NFTs exploded is because it's allowed digital artists to actually sell their art online. And when we think about people, that's a very good use case. Now, 90% of NFT projects are shams and scams. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that. But the real use cases that have actually created new value for like a market, um, those are great use cases, like the Beeples, the real digital artists, right? And so how this ties into gaming is that um, 
where else do we need digital assets besides art? Right? People buy art, people want digital art, makes sense. But we've always been having digital assets in games, Steam Market, right? TF2 hats, uh, Fortnite skins, and so forth. And so um, this new category of games has emerged based on this idea where, okay, how about when you play this game, um, when, you earn, when you earn skins, you earn assets, you can actually hold them as tokens on the Ethereum blockchain that you can take to another game. And um, a very good example of this that I, I played a bunch of, I'm a gamer too, I play StarCraft 2, I play Dota 2. Uh, I've also tried many blockchain games. A very good example of this is um, Skyweaver that's uh, started by a Toronto company called Horizon Blockchain Games. CEO's name is Michael Sanders. You can look him up on LinkedIn. And they basically created kind of like a, an MTG arena type of game. But when you go to the marketplace, just like in Magic or any other card game, you can go to like a marketplace and list your cards. Um, when you're buying and selling the cards, you can sell them in USDC, which is uh, digital USD that's uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. So for all intents and purposes, it's actually not that different from a traditional card game marketplace like eBay or whatever, where you can just buy and sell your cards for US dollars. But now you can actually do it on USDC, meaning you do not need to go through the traditional banking system. You can do it all online, like all in-app with a crypto wallet to transact and trade with players. Um, so as a broad stroke, that's kind of, uh, you know, NFTs, why NFTs are emerging in gaming and like a real live uh, game today. Yeah, and I'm just imagining that you're not going to get those additional transaction fees. You're going to be able to trade things in an ecosystem that all understands each other instead of being like, oh, how do I get this from one game to another? And I'm going to have to download something. I'm going to have to re-upload it. I'm going to have to ask for permission from the developers to see if we could even bring this into the game. It's more of an understanding that everything exists and understands each other so you're easier to trade and you also exactly. don't have a middle person that's like i need like about five to ten percent off the top for any transaction that you do <laughs> yeah and so um it's using the ethereum blockchain or polygon there's many blockchains right um as opposed to our traditional payment networks like visa or mastercard um can be can be cheaper. Currently, it's not as cheap, depending on gas fees and other things. Um, it can be cheaper and can be faster with no middlemen, because the Ethereum network is supported by people like me and you who have computers and are running these miners and supporting the transactions that happen. Um, so, yeah. Got it. And what were some of the reservations that you think somebody that's looking to get into gaming on? something on the built on the blockchain what are some reservations that you've seen that they might have had when it comes to that type of even though it's like technically the same thing as you mentioned where you're trading an asset for for currency what are some yeah. reservations that you've seen where people like might not understand how it works yeah so i think we've seen this approached in a very poor way across the industry as well which is like um for example, a lot of NFT projects launch and say, hey, buy my NFT, this JPEG, and then we're going to launch a game and you can play it in game after, and then they never launch a game. Okay, like that's clearly not how to use blockchain technology to help your game, right? Um, where on the other hand, um, the CEO of Gala Games, he is the co-founder of Zynga. Okay, so we see some actually, if 
the games don't impress you, I, I assure you that the talent and the people working behind it will, because there's a lot of smart people making their way to the industry. So he he has said, um, I'm going to make games game that are fun first and then have these blockchain monetization or NFT aspects later. And so he's actually launched games. Uh, one's called Townstar. It's live. It's played it. It's basically like Farmville. It's, it's like Farmville, um, except for when you buy items, uh, there are NFTs that sit in your wallet, and then you can go and trade them on OpenSea. But for all intents and purposes, it's just a regular game and the blockchain component, and that's just a small part of it. Um, so I think that the best games focus on making a good game first and then worrying about the blockchain piece after. In my opinion, I'm, I'm researching this every day, and I talk to blockchain games every, every single week. But in my opinion, the blockchain aspect is only an innovation on the economy of the game, not core mechanics. If, if we see some core mechanics change, that's going to be cool. That's going to be cool. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the same vein as you. As a UX designer, when it's building for these things, and I think this what happened also with Web 2.0, is people that have access to actually develop things on the technology usually come from the perspective of this technology is cool, come for the <laughs> technology, right? It's like technology-led first, but... One thing that's been happening with the emergence of experience design, whether it's customer service, user experience, um, these things are looking at it from the perspective of who cares if you have something built on the blockchain? What does that mean to me? As an average person that's not related to it, that's just looking to play fun games, this has nothing to do with me. The more important thing is how do you build something that is really great in terms of an experience, in terms of how it functions and makes it really easy to do these transactions where the blockchain aspect is there, but it's kind of invisible because it just works well? Yeah. Yeah. I think that from a design perspective, a lot of work needs to be done. My opinion is that the two things that are required for a larger adoption of crypto, uh, number one, user experience. It's so damn hard to figure out how to use a MetaMask to load up gas, to go on OpenSea, log with wallet, have a private keys, and then buy an NFT. It's just too difficult. Uh, and then number two is security. Um, it is not safe. Uh, like Unless you're educated, you're savvy, you know how to use this, um, there's so many ways that you could just instantly lose your money if you send it to the wrong button or click the wrong place, right? Um, so I, I, I totally feel you on it. Yeah, or if you forget your password, you're just like, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> Too much responsibility, right? Um, but this is where I think that um, you'll you'll see if you if you take some time and, and explore crypto Twitter as well, all all the crypto people on Twitter or the blockchain space, you'll hear a large conversation about centralization versus decentralization, and um, Ethereum is like BitTorrent, right? Or Wikipedia. It's the first time we've had a completely distributed network. Nobody owns it. Anybody can write or read to it, edit it, and so forth. So people who are what you call like ETH maxis or Ethereum maximalists, like ultimate believers, they say, hey, anything that is centralized is bad. So they would say things like, hey, Coinbase is bad. The whole point of this blockchain thing is that nobody controls it. And I don't know if you have this big corporation with investors controlling it. So I actually believe that's the wrong approach. I think that we need both uh, um, centralized and decentralized companies to work together to build services. Centralized companies are typically way better at providing a user experience. Coinbase is doing a fantastic job with that, right? Um, whereas the decentralized ones are very strong at just 
pure innovation at creating things. There's no limits. There's no financial incentive. It's just, it's like academia, like do an experiment on whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see the merchants of DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which are basically just co-ops or like digital communities um, that they work as slow as governments because they have to vote on everything. Um, so to tie this into my company, our company is a centralized company, uh, unstoppable domains. And um, we, we build domains uh, on the blockchain that you can store in your wallet as NFTs. Uh, that's a mouthful. I can make it simpler. But um, in terms of decentralized versus decentralized, uh, I hear it from customers and people every day. Um, there's pros and cons to both. Yeah, and I guess from what you're saying and how I understand it is if you want something where people can get a consistent experience and people actually have to care about it, centralized is the way, but you don't want it to be so centralized that everything is just controlled by that centralized unit. And then with decentralized, you get a little bit more freedom to do what you want and how to... And like anything that you can build, you just build it and see how it works, but you don't want it to be at a place where every experience is kind of rapidly different and none of them are really held, their feet are held to the fire of what people actually want. And they're kind of wild, wild west. If somebody, if somebody gets affected negatively, sorry, it was, sorry, it was purely your responsibility to do this. And as human beings, we have human error all the time. So it's not very easy to just tell everybody, yeah, you didn't read it. Sorry, you're, you're ish out of luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think the easiest analogy for this is just um, it's Apple versus the Linux Foundation. The three leading operating systems, right? Uh, Apple, Windows, Linux, right? Linux is completely open source. It's been open source for 25 years. How many people use Linux today? Like maybe 10% of the population, only real developers, right? Um, But they're on the cutting edge. They're creating things that Apple hasn't done or they're ahead of the, they innovate faster than than Apple, but the user experience is not always there. Sometimes security is a little shifty. Um, So I like to say that the Ethereum foundation is very much like the Linux foundation, just the Web3 version. Nice. Do what you want, share ideas, share the code. But when you're trying to put it in many people's hands, you gotta, you gotta be a little bit more concerned. You might have your like true small group of like, um, what did you call it? ETH maxis. Yeah, ETH maxis. The ETH maximalists. Max- yeah, the maximalists that are just like, yeah, no, this is amazing. This is incredible. I'm gonna do all this stuff. <laughs> Could you have that piece of code? Could I borrow that? Thank you. And they're gonna go crazy. But when you try to scale it for everybody, it might not be the best solution because people probably need a little bit more education to be able to fully utilize everything yeah. on the blockchain. That's why I see um, Wealthsimple and they're allowing their users to purchase crypto. I think that's fantastic because it is making it accessible to the very, you know, the very average, like not financially or investor savvy type of person. Like that's, that's fantastic, right? Because even buying a stock is a very challenging thing. Um, crypto is insanely challenging, but these centralized, you know, uh, good trusted companies make it easier. Yeah. And it's only through that small, somebody that has a trusted experience and they bring it on in a way where they're not just like, well, we can't just be 
as gung-ho as everybody else doing this space we actually have to take more care because our reputation we have a bigger reputational stake in this than the other person that's just experimenting and trying things out to see if it's going to work for people yeah so on the gaming front you, you know you you or listeners might be thinking okay so what game should i try and are they going to be fun and i'll be frank with you i've tried i tried a lot of them not many of them are better uh i would say almost no web 3 game is better than the best web 2 games right now okay um we'll see when alluvium launches so alluvium um it's the first like triple a very hyped uh web 3.0 game um and they've brought on um former executives from riot games so you know we're very excited to see what they launch um but at the end of the day games come down to gameplay and um we'll we'll see what comes out that's that can be on par with like a valorant or an overwatch huh true true or apex legends um <laughs> sorry a little a little bit stuffy in here but that's good to see that they are getting triple a games and yeah i'm pretty excited to see what they're gonna do with that because only when you start making those games that everybody's excited for is when you could really start saying there's actual ground being made at least in that space mm -hmm. is like when you get your mario quote unquote of <laughs> of the blockchain then it's going to be a very much a different conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about the space that you're in, um, going from just what blockchain is, how you've looked at growth or choosing your career, and also in the gaming and more specifically blockchain, how it's going to affect. But let's tailor it back and let's bring it back to a little bit more about you. And like, I one thing I want to know is your current role, you said that you were looking for a more... Um, you're looking for more growth and then this is more of a um, director roles that you're going towards an executive role. So how would you define your current role that you're at um, in unstoppable domains? For sure. So my official job title is business development. Um, you can also call it partnerships. Um, the difference between this and my previous role, previous I was in sales. Uh, B2B sales is a great place to be. Um, you get to uh, talk to new customers every day. You're the person bringing revenue for the company, um, pitches, negotiations, all that great stuff. Um, the difference between a partnerships role and a sales role is that a sales role is you're often working with partners. You have a vendor relationship with them, which is like, if you buy this software, it will bring your company these types of results. Um, if you buy fresh books, it'll save your accounting department 10 hours worth of work. That's worth $2,000 for your company. It only costs $200 a month, right? Um, partnerships roles are you work in a partnership relationship, meaning that there's no, oftentimes there's no monitor, there's like no payment to either people, but it's something like, Hey, Lyft, if like, if you see Google maps, if you click like rideshare, there's like a lift, like take a lift, right? It someone at Google and someone at Lyft came on the partnership team came together and said, Hey, let's both integrate our software into, into, into your app. We won't charge you, but every time someone books a lift app, we want a 10 or 20% commission. Mm. Therefore, you're going to get more rides. We're going to get more people using Google Maps, easily booking rides. Um, so it's a win-win. We both get more users and more revenue. Mm -hmm. So in partnerships roles, you're basically looking to drive mutual, uh, mutual user growth and mutual revenue growth. So in my current role today, um, I'm talking to, I can only, we can only really work with crypto companies. So I talk to wallets, exchanges, uh, decentralized apps, 
um, you know, blockchain games, uh, about ways that we can integrate our technology that can help drive user growth to them or revenue or whatever other marketing goals they have. Got it. So it's very much focused on how do we how do we get a mutually beneficial result where you're happy, we're happy, and it also makes sense for your user base on this connection being made. Exactly. So a very a very simple example is um, basically a very easy way to explain a solution. It's like a cross between Venmo, which is uh, uh, now I'm in the states, but like uh, <laughs> like PayPal, where like rather than send money to uh, Jermaine, like if if I asked you for your bank account, I'd have to ask you for your ACH number, your transit number, account number, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It's like sixty digits. PayPal allows you to just consolidate that into one name, which is like at Jermaine, right? Venmo does the same. So we do the same thing for crypto. Cryptocurrency wallet addresses are twenty six alphanumeric addresses. They're impossible to remember. Mm-hmm. We allow you to buy a name that you can permanently own. So I own Ryan dot wallet ryaning.wallet so that we can simplify payments. So we're cross between Venmo and single sign-on, but for all Web3. That's the best way to put it. Nice. So for example, an example partnership we worked on was with Coinbase. Coinbase, people have to send money to each other's wallets, right? So he said, hey, why don't we allow it so that people can just type in ryaning.wallet when they're sending their Ethereum and Bitcoin, and it'll go to the right place. And they said, hey, that's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, let's do it. Yeah. So it's simplifying. So I know like there's a lot of hex codes and yeah. GUI, GUI numbers and all of that. So instead of giving all of that backend information, it's like, Hey, you know what? I'm breaking that the imposter and just use that. And you'll be able to use that as a replacement for that long digit, that long code that we c- I can remember very easily. You can remember very easily and won't have that mistaken typo that ends up sending it to the wrong person. And then you're both just like, well, what do we do here? <laughs> exactly. So, and, and you can even see this in, in the mainstream now, right? So if you were to go on Twitter, if you look up Jimmy Fallon, right? His name on Twitter will be Fallon.eth. If you look at Paris Hilton, it'll be uh, Paris.eth. If you go to Meek Mills, it's MeekMill.nft. And you know that's us, Unstoppable Domains. Nice. That's really, that's actually a very clever thing to do. Because even like when I was using the wallet and I was like playing in tournaments that were built on the blockchain, I was like, how am I supposed to get this out of here? I don't want to do this. <laughs> it's like, this is very annoying that I have to remember this or I have to go and save the code where I can easily access it and also make sure it's not done incorrectly and then it's like just as an experience it doesn't make sense to have something so difficult because that's not my language all of that what you're storing there it's not my language that i speak i speak in terms of words that are easily associated with me like let me own the word not the string of numbers yeah exactly so bringing it back to our point earlier the two barriers adoption of crypto Mm -hmm. usability security right Usability, we're helping make it uh, more usable. Um, so to talk more about the, the role specifically, it's basically, you know, uh, I'm, I'm talking to crypto companies every day, whether it's me reaching out to them on Twitter. I'll tell you, one of the funny things about working in Web3 company is like, I'll have an email with them, we'll have a Zoom chat, and it's like, how should I follow up? Add me on Discord. Like, <laughs> you know, I've never like added a customer on Discord, but like that's a culture. Add me on Discord, add me on Telegram, add me on Twitter. 
I'm like, you don't want email. You don't want Slack. You don't want, I, I don't know, text message. They want these methods. So that's kind of interesting. So anyways, um, I'll have a conversation with them, understand their goals. I'll put together a proposal, maybe a little demo. Um, and uh, we basically work on a an implementation plan and go from there. Nice. Amazing. And just in terms of how you transitioned here and got from starting at IBM and working your way all the way to Unstoppable Domains, like what were some of those soft skills that's been helping you now and it's really helped you with that transition? Um, even though it's like s slightly different industries, this remained consistent as, you've, as you mm -hmm. went. So I think people know whether they work better in big companies or small companies. And I think that you should find the right the right place for yourself. Some people I know are just very entrepreneurial. They wouldn't do good at a big company. I did. I actually liked working in a big company. It was fine, but I just felt, felt that the growth was more limited. One thing that I think, one soft skill that I think I uh, developed and, and focused on a lot is um, understanding politics within our organization. And the, the way that I would summarize it is that you have to make other people look good. So you'll see the, 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 the biggest executives at any company, they, they make others look good. And that's why they're leaders, right? And it doesn't have to be necessarily like kind of self-serving thing, like, oh, if I make others look good, I'll get promoted. Um, but genuinely like looking for ways to help others, that's what I'll call like cost neutral to yourself. Like it costs you nothing, but it benefits someone a lot. Why not do it, right? And when you think about like a team meeting, if you give someone, if you say congrats to someone, if you say this person's doing a really good job, that doesn't take anything away from you. It just makes them look good. Um, and it, it helps build the whole team morale, right? So um, I think that's something that I've, that, that's helped me throughout my career. Um, I'm, I'm fairly public with my work. I post it on LinkedIn. I do public speaking, stuff like that. And something I always try to keep in mind is, you know what? I, I want to make others look good because that'll also make me, make me look good. That'll help other people grow as well. Uh, that'll help me grow my reputation. Uh, so that, that's the one key I'd, I'd, I'd share. Yeah. So it's just making sure that you know how people fit within an organization and to also uplift those that are around you, because even though it's going to be a small gesture for yourself, them looking good helps them perform better. And then it just increases the likeliness of your performance looking better. And it just creates a better environment for everybody to be around and grow in versus staying silent they might feel like oh am i doing a good job i don't know what i'm doing yeah. is other people really seeing what i'm doing as good and then it's like instead of being open and collaborative they're more closed off and mm -hmm. siloed leaders leaders always highlight the successes of of those around them i i've, I've seen that as a pattern yeah i, I think that's I, I definitely say that awesome awesome and going into a little bit deeper outside of your role, outside of um, the blockchain space, just want to see a little bit more of like how you would identify your personal brand. So as you look at Ryan as a whole, how would you say your personal brand is displayed in the world? Mm -hmm. I think that I, I often ask people this because I, I want to know and um, a top trait that comes up is inspiring. It, it sounds so weird to describe as, like I'm an inspiring person. Like I don't want to, I, I wouldn't describe myself as that, but I think that just in the way that like I see myself and, and I naturally try to help others. Like I want to inspire others, which is basically um, helping people believe that they can achieve more. 
mm. helping people see potential in themselves that they did not think is possible. And I'm always reminding myself that I'm just like, dude, I uh, came out of Ryerson, like I did this door to door sales things. I landed at IBM from IBM. I went to here from here to here and now I'm in the States. And all of it was just like, I did not know this was possible. And so I always, every time I've reached a milestone in my career, I try to inspire others by just saying, Hey guys, wanted to let you know, I've achieved this. I had no idea this was possible. Here are the steps that I followed to do it. You can do it too. And just by virtue of having that attitude, people like people are inspired and people are, people say it's, it's, it's inspiring. Um, so to take it to a, an even broader picture, um, I, I run a blog, it's rhining.com. Nobody really looks at it. It's more of a personal journey kind of a thing, but, um, I want, um, I have a blog series entitled from intern to executive over 20 years, which serves to, to document the journey from being an intern at a company. I have photos from when I was at Manulife, blog posts all the way till I'm an executive at a company. And so basically people can actually in the future, people just sit down and read and understand what does it actually take to get there? Because it's not documented. Like, Sometimes the closest thing you can find to this is maybe if you read the biography of like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, because they're so famous that like someone actually sat down, like a historian sat down and like tr interviewed all the people of their life and get there. But I just want the regular Joe, like, how did you actually become a, like a CTO or like a CMO of a company? Like, I'm curious, like, how did you actually get promoted? Like, how long did it take? What companies did you work at? How many times did you change? Uh, and so... This story, I think, will be a broad inspiration to others who choose to work in a similar path. Yeah, and I think I think it's so inspiring, mm -hmm. <laughs> lack of better word, because this is exactly what this podcast is looking to do, right? It's so many times you hear stories of people like the you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, all of these people that it seems like they're so detached from the average person that people can't see themselves being successful in any capacity, in any capacity, right? It always has to be like, well, I'm not that famous or things like that. But for your blog, when it goes from intern to um, an executive really starts to show how these people that we think are so detached from us are just regular people that went on a journey and we're continuing to grow from there, from where they are now to even further and from different circumstances to where they are now. And it's just so much closer in terms of what we have to go through than what we believe based off of the persona that's brought by others. Exactly. It's that like believability, you know, when you have someone very close to you achieve something great, you believe it's possible because you realize they're not that much different from you. Um, uh, like a non-career example, I, I watched an interview with 21 Savage. Um, I actually like his work a lot. He's like, he's really janky and he's like really hood. But like, I watched an interview, I'm like, what's this guy's story? Like, why is he rapping about like such dark stuff? And like, he just, he's he, like, interview asked him like, what, what's this, what do you want to share? He's like, yo, you gotta understand. Like, I'm just a dude from the hood. And like, now I'm here. You know, and I'm like, damn, like he's humble, you know, yeah. like Kanye West wouldn't say that. Like he, <laughs> he literally is that guy who made it from the and he, he continues to share that through his music and his story. It's like, I'm not anyone special. Like I, I'm just someone who worked hard at rap and I, I got here. Right. And so, um, I think that for people who strive to, you know, um, 
get to the next level of their career, try to find someone maybe only one to two steps ahead of you, not the Bill Gates or you know, but just one or two steps ahead of you, and deconstruct what did they do to get where they are. Um, if you want to work at Google, right? Don't look at the VP. Look at the person who started as an entry level job. Deconstruct that. Where did they work at before? I, I've looked and I've deconstructed. Most people who work in Google, I'm saying in the business side, not the tech side, the most of them worked for a CBG company like Procter and Gamble or Johnson Johnson because they have you have to bring that marketing mindset for products, um, or they work for a marketing agency uh, because um, those are the primary distributors of Google Ads. So um, yeah, there's the, there's patterns of success if you if you search for them. Yeah, I think you brought up a very good point that I think sometimes I forget to do. And it's very easy to get lost in the sauce, for lack of better words, again, <laughs> because so much of what we have is people where we can see on Instagram, on um, Twitter, on TV that live these lifestyles that are so far away from where we think we are now that we're just like, oh, man, I I don't know if I could ever get there because of the gap that we see. But if you go into that, other people that are more in your proximity of who's who just kind of went through my phase in the last like year or two, and I can look at what they did to start moving in that direction of better than what I am today. And it's not really looking at them to be like the be all end all, but it's like, instead of putting your focus, your mental focus into something that will make you feel like, well, I can't do that. Be like, you know what? I just saw them here just two years ago, a year ago. Mm -hmm. I can do that. I can do that. And then that makes you put, be in motion to go further. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, that disbelief can be suspended if you just figure out how people, how people did it. Right. And, um, even, um, um, I was recently reading a book, the, the psychology of money, where it's like Bill Gates actually generated, sorry, sorry, Warren Buffett actually generated like 80% of his wealth, like after the age of like 50 or 60, like he's the richest man in the world, but like, it wasn't until he was like in his fifties or sixties, I think it would actually be much more interesting to study, uh, Warren Buffett in his like twenties or thirties. Like what was he doing when he was that age? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I speak. Where's the where's the disconnect? Where you just everybody just knows him as the richest guy, but what were those foundational pieces that were being built along the way to get there? And just like going into that, I want to know a little bit more. Like as you were progressing through your career, like how did you really adopt this? Like look two steps ahead versus across the way like how did you how did you really put that into your process of just staying focused on the next step versus mm. the end goal yeah i think i think mentorship plays a huge role in that because if you select mentors who are only one or two steps ahead of you you'll you'll be able to very clearly see and actually talk and like meet with these people of like what they're doing and just ask them like hey you recently had this career challenge two years ago what are your tips now right and so if I were to go back to like when I was a first year business student, I found someone in fifth year who had completed five internships. I'm like, you're killing it. You're the president of a student group. You know, what should I focus on for my first internship? And he gave me advice, right? What should I focus on my second, right? I still keep in touch with him today. I'm like, 
what do you think about IBM's new grad sales program? Is it a good place to start? Um, I'm thinking about leaving IBM. What do you think? He's recently been promoted to manager. How did you get to manager? Like, what do you have to show? Da, da, da. I'm honestly just following his footsteps. <laughs> um, so I think the power of the power of, of, of mentorship is is unmatched. Uh, it has definitely contributed to uh, a significant amount of my career success. So the question comes becomes how do you find mentors and why do people mentor others? And I like to think I'm a very good mentee, and that's why people want to mentor me, right? And what that means is that. Sheryl Sandberg, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, CEO of Facebook, she wrote the book Lean In. She has a chapter about mentorship. And she says, mentors, people, mentors choose their mentees based on who they think has great potential. So if you show great potential, people will want to mentor you. So when I was a first year business student, I went to this guy and I'm like, hey, I really, I, I really admire what you're doing. You're so accomplished. When I'm in final year, I want to be a president of a student group like you. Da, 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 da. here's what I'm doing now, here's what I'm working on, what advice do you have? If you present yourself in that way, people will want to mentor you for sure. On the other hand, if you come to people with not a winning attitude, but like let's say a confused one or you know a dismayed one, which is like, hey, I have these problems, like my GPA is low, like what do I do? Like the, the, the job market is so unfair. People aren't gonna wanna mentor you. Right. Mm -hmm. So it kind of starts, it, it starts with uh, an attitude, I would say. Yeah, I think, I think that's one, one thing that I say, or like I always think about is like not coming from a place of desperation, whether you're dating or you're looking for a mentor, like any type of relationship that you are trying to build on. It sounds like the point that is not effective is desperation where it's just like, I'm in the negative. I need you to help bring me to the pot. Like that type of yeah. mentality is not as effective as, you know what? Freak bump everything. If I'm not doing well, I just want to talk to you because I'm looking to move further than I am today. Whether it's in the negative, whether it's in the black, whatever it is, I want to just make sure that I'm here to have this conversation with you because I want to go further than I am today. Yes. Yes. And, and building on the theme of like, you know, breaking the imposter, like, I think that when we seek help from others, it's so hard to put away our troubles and to put away our challenges and to, to, to not rant, like as an example. And, um, I remember I was talking to one of my mentors when I was having a very frustrating time at IBM. And uh, what had happened, it's like I had been promised a promotion, but I had gotten a promotion without a raise. Hmm. Did you know that's possible? Like you can get promoted to a high level, but you don't get a raise. Like, mm -hmm. And so I was just so frustrated and this and this and that, this and this and that. And then my mentor just told me, he's like, Ryan, I get you're upset. Okay, I get why you think this isn't fair. But what do you want to happen? Where do you want to go with this? And I'm like, I just want this to be matched. And she's like, okay, rather than spend, you know, 15 minutes of our call complaining about it, and then 15 minutes, you know, whatever, let's spend the whole 25 minutes focusing on how you can craft a, a very articulate and professional message to your manager about why this is a good decision for you to be supported for this race. Mm -hmm. I'm like, damn, you're right. I had to like break out of it, right? <laughs> And so that, that's a lesson I've taken away. Um, because I've worked at IBM for three years, 
Um, I get people contact me from IBM all the time and saying, oh, this is happening. There's layoffs happening here. My manager did this. I don't like my job. And I have to stop them and be like, look, I understand because I've been through the same thing. But let's spend this 20 minutes and figure out where you want to go. And I ask them and they, the answer is often, I don't know where I want to go. <laughs> and so we have to spend the time actually figuring that out. But uh, yeah, spend the time uh, talking about not where you came from and what's holding you back and what you're fearful about, but where you want to go. Yeah, it's bringing me back a little bit full circle to what you were saying and what we started off with, where find that place where you can be a little bit more objective about what you're looking at. So whether it's looking at the different job industries and want to change a job, or if it's situations that are negative, you feel are negatively impacting you instead of leading with the, I don't know what to do. I just want it to be fixed. Ah, my life sucks. It's like, how do we bring that back and start looking at it as a solution based or just more data driven approach? Mm -hmm. So I'd like to hear from you as well. What, what does imposter syndrome mean and um what do you think are some strategies to overcome it so what i think imposter syndrome means is kind of going into that place as you as we were talking about of desperation just to like keep it thematically on board with what we're talking about is you're not able to see your potential past your negative ideas that you have towards yourself or how you're doing right so if i'm sitting there and i know what happened to me before where i'm taking my time to learn how to do better visual design because i never did any i'm actually moving the needle forward with my work where it's getting a little bit better how i'm doing my facilitation or it's a little bit better how i am organizing my wireframes and documenting because I have this mentality of where I think I should be versus it's like looking at if I get into that state where I start looking at like where I should be or where I want to be or where I think the end goal is and I'm not looking at like what that next step actually looks like and how I'm actually taking that small step then I get a disconnect in my brain where it's like oh my gosh I'm not doing well. I'm bad at this because uh, I'm focusing on how far I am versus how much I'm inching towards the goal. I think like that disconnect, I feel a lot of people have when it comes to break, when it comes to imposter syndrome and going through that. And I think going back to a bit of some of the themes that came out is like going through it objectively and saying, you know what? what is the next logical step that I need to get there? So let's say I want to become, like one of my goals is to become a design strategist, right? But one of my things that I'm looking to do is become a better facilitator of conversation. So like, you know what? The next conversation that I wanna have, I wanna make sure that everybody feels a little heard. And it's just like a smaller goal that I wanna do. And instead of cutting people off and leading with my ideas, I would give people space to share their ideas and let that be more of what the meeting is versus my objectives. And then I could look at that and be like, okay, based on that meeting, that's one of the skills you need to be a, a strategist or to help one of the skills and be like, you know what? I checked that off in that meeting. I did that well. Maybe there's a few things that I could, that I cut off too short or I went too 
different too many different areas where nobody could really understand but i at least checked that off and i could work on those other pieces so it's just really really breaking things down into a lot smaller chunks um mm -hmm. there's like a method that that's there for chunking where you take something that's a really big goal a really big idea and you break it down into something that's bite size like if they um i think the phrase goes like um you're if you want to eat an elephant, make it one bite at a time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's just really breaking it down to things that you at your current level can do. And I think that helps take you away from always going back to the place of, well, I'm not here yet. So that means I must be failing to like, you know what? I moved that a little bit. My plate is a little bit cleaner because I had that bite. And that helps. That's a strategy that I think that will really help people move forward as they're going through. Yeah. Wow. So what I'm hearing is that it's almost like if we're looking at a image of ourselves of like where we should be or what I think I should be, then it is like looking at an imposter. But if we just look at ourselves as here's who I am, here's where I came from, then you'll feel more confident about yourself. And then to bridge that gap, I also hear you just talking about chunking and, and focusing on like what's in your control right? These small steps that you can take to, to get to the place you are. That's great. Yeah. I was like, I'm, I look at martial artists, even when I was going, I'd be like, Oh man, these guys are so crazy. They're so good. And it'd be like, what's the first thing I can work on? Just increase my flexibility a little bit. <laughs> Start working on my basic punch a little bit better, working on my block. So, cause that's what they had to do. As um, you mentioned before, when you look at people that are two steps ahead of you, they are probably have to do some of the same practices or those same small steps that you did to get there. But it's not like it's impossible unless you're like, looking at them and just being like, wow, I could never do that. Oh, they're way too far for me to be able to do that. It's like, mm, maybe not. Maybe they're closer, but you're not looking at it from the small steps that they're taking on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. You're looking at just the gap. So mind the gap. But as they sound like T uh, TTC, uh, the transit for Toronto, <laughs> just like that, that area there, which I think is the most important of just mind the gap. Mind when you're focusing too much on the gap versus the next step that's in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, I think like to summarize it. <laughs> So I want to ask one more question about imposter, and I think we'll we'll probably have time for the rapid fire. Yep. Um, do you think that anybody can actually just legitimately like be an imposter or like legitimately have imposter syndrome um in their role? Like let's say they they um they took a job they're not necessarily unqualified for, but like severely underqualified for. Mm -hmm. And they're just trying to grind at it. They're like every day I'm like, I feel like this is just not what I should be doing. I'm out of my league. I'm, you know, like, do you think there are like, um, real, real cases of imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that's very true. That's funny. That's one of the questions that I asked that I wasn't going to get into with you because of how the conversation progressed. But I think we have tendencies of writing checks that we can't cash, right? Like you want to, <laughs> you want to be, and this is where it comes to not really looking at the next steps ahead of you. If you're just like, you know what, I'll figure it out. I'll do it. Even though this is like a senior position and I'm only junior skill level, like if I could talk my way into it, it's great. And I think people could set themselves up to a situation where they're constantly feeling the imposter syndrome because the gap is not only something where you're just looking at somebody else and you're like, hey, you know what? I just, I'm not them. So it's there. It's like you're actually measured by that gap 
right? So instead of you just being measured on as a junior designer, be like, you know what, we're going to just give you a project and we want to see, can you create user flows? Can you create wireframes? And based off of what we tell you to do and just do that now, because you're not really good at that and you're still working on those skills, you also have to learn how to um, facilitate conversations with stakeholders, how to pivot on different product strategies that you get during the day. You have to be able to create entire like experiences that are acknowledging different product lines and how it works on an enterprise level. And it's just like, because you spoke so highly of yourself and you put yourself in a compromising position, I think that there's no way you're going to be able to avoid imposter syndrome when you when you set yourself up to those stakes. So it's just like really understanding where you're at and taking that step back to understand and not putting yourself in a position where you have to be measured by those standards. Because if I'm just like, you know what, I'm very I'm not very good at sales. Um, now I have Ryan. He's really great at what he does. He's really great at speaking people. And I have that gap like I can still take that back and be like, you know what, but I don't have to. I don't have to worry about that as much and I could like focus on what I have to do on my next steps. But as soon as I go and be like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm a very good talker, a smooth talker. So I ended up getting the same role as Ryan and now I'm being measured. I'm being measured for that level of performance. Now it's just like, oh, shh, what am I going to do? I, I, I literally physically can't do that right now because I don't have that experience. So now it's like, do I, I just it's better to leave the job and find something more at my pace than yeah. be in that constant position of I'm not there. I'm not going to make it. Oh my gosh, this is too hard. This is too out of my depth. Like you want to push yourself within again, that one, two steps, not really try and put yourself because it looks shiny, nice, shiny title. He makes a certain amount more money than me, but then now you're just feeling like this is never going to work. Cause yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> so in the range of like taking on a role that, is a really big stretch and taking on a role that's like really comfortable and you know you can do i've definitely taken on roles that are more of a stretch mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and i have found myself like out of my depth um feeling feeling like an imposter um but i do think that going back to the theme of taking risk by default, I know I have to lean more on this side of like a bit of a stretch in order to get growth. The The trick is finding the balance of how how far, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in the world of sales, for example, um, this role is actually a fantastic fit because it's blockchain, gaming, and sales. And I'm like all very knowledgeable about all three. But if we were to like change one or two, it would be hard. Like if I were to go work for uh let's say like i don't know sap in like you know uh erp implementations like i don't know anything about erps i know about sales but I don't know anything about this company it's like very much a stretch right so um i definitely i definitely feel you on that but one quote that i like that it, it keeps me going is uh it's by black thought he has like the funk flex freestyle where he's like i don't fake it till i'm uh, i don't fake it till i make it i push it to the limit and break it what I'm about, never tinted, represent it. And it's just like, I have to, like, sometimes I wake up and I feel like an imposter. I'm like, you know what? Like, I will, I will fake it till I make it. And I will just like push it to the limit. Like whatever I have to do to bring my best to this day of work, 
if the customer's like, you have no idea what you're talking about, like, hey, that's completely fine. Let me take down a few questions and I'll I'll make sure I get back to you by the end of the day. Like, whatever is within my control, I'm going to make sure it happens. Um, but some days I do wake up like I'm an imposter, man. <laughs> and it's just, it's just like going off of that piggybacking a little is what's your level of comfort in discomfort? Honestly, I can say till I'm blue in the face, find something that's a little bit more your pace or and just like stretches you a little bit. But if you're like, you know what? I need to stretch all the way to the point I'm about to break. And that's the Ooh. only way to really get me to get me going and I would put in the hours, I'll work the 80 hours, I'll do what it takes and until it takes, then that's something that you should go for if it's work makes sense for you. But you don't want to put yourself in that position where you just feel no matter if you push it to the limit, you're like, this is never going to work. Um, like, I think the imposter syndrome is good to be like, it's a good reminder of like, okay, if you could feel it and take a step back and be like, why do I feel that? Where do I feel like I'm lacking? And then help to fill that gap. All for it. But if you're not somebody that's self-reflective, if you just are not willing to put in that work, that's that is hard. It's just gonna it's just gonna be rough. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Awesome. So thank you so much, Ryan. I do love ending off with the rapid fire segments. So this is just to get really quick things that the, are very bite-sized that people could take back and start implementing it in their life or just explore it even further. Cause we've had a lot of long form conversation. It's just easy to just break it down. Something simpler for them. You ready? For sure. Awesome. So we kind of touched it, but just to reiterate the, what is one attribute that has contributed to your success slash growth? Yeah, mentorship for sure has always been and will continue to be for the rest of my career. Awesome. And who has been a great inspiration for you, even though you're a great inspiration for others? My uh, my first mentor, Lester. Lester Chan, great friend, great mentor. But this guy is, uh, I think, 32 and he's a director. He has probably 50 people reporting to him now. So he's done very well for himself and took a path of leadership as well. Nice. And throughout this journey, who has been your biggest cheerleader of your success? Uh, my dad. I'm I'm very grateful for that. My dad, uh, he, he also worked in IT. So uh, each step, he's been, uh, he's been very proud of me. Doesn't vocalize it, kind of expresses it in the Chinese, you know, like <laughs> indirect way. But I know that he's very proud. Awesome. He'll like tell other people, but not tell me directly. directly. <laughs> <laughs> you have to hear it down the grapevine. <laughs> yeah. And how do you celebrate your wins? I think I uh, I actually go back and tell my mentors and seeing them proud of me also makes me proud of myself. Hmm. And what's one lie you had to stop telling yourself? I think that uh, coming out of school, I wanted to just work on what is the highest paying, highest growth job. And I think that that is definitely the wrong approach. <laughs> I think that it's better to actually find what's what's the intersection between high growth, but like, I'm actually genuinely interested in this. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up in the gaming industry. Awesome. And what is a hobby that you do outside of work that keeps you grounded? Um, I'm, I, I, I'm into hip hop dance. Uh, and it just allows me to connect with music, allow me to let go. Um, has nothing to do with technology. <laughs> 
Awesome. And what's the best advice you've ever received? I would say if you want to climb the corporate ladder of success, there's person A, person B. Person A helps everyone around them so that when they fall, they get caught by everyone they helped. Person B pushes everyone down to try and climb faster. But when that person falls, nobody's there to catch them. Hmm. And if you had 60 seconds with yourself when you came fresh out of high school, what advice would you give him? Uh, take more risks and specialize <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and what is one book that you'd recommend? Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. Mm. Uh, very, very empowering book. And what's one piece of parting advice that you could share with the listeners? Blockchain is an emerging industry. Uh, in five, 10 years, you'll look back and be like, damn, that was like working for Facebook in 2010. Nice. And <laughs> last but not least, for those who want to, how can they best reach out to you? Uh, LinkedIn is the best way. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I make posts. Uh, I respond to all DMs. Uh, I've kind of made it my mantra. One time I got ghosted. I didn't, I didn't feel good about it. So I never ghost people. Um, I'll actually just say yes or no, or um, here's a better resource or something else we can do to help. Amazing. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. I know I got a lot of really great inspiration and information from the conversation. I just hope you, the viewers, also have certain things that you could take back to help with your own success and growth and to break if you're feeling a little bit of, of imposter. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great day then. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking the Imposter. To stay up to date when episodes are released or to become a guest on the podcast, you can visit our website at www.breakingtheimposter.com. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so we can make sure the imposter stays broken. 